right. How's everyone doing? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal. We are so glad that you are here. Welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church, whether you are here with us, worshiping with us in, present, uh, in person, or you worship with us online. Um, today we continue uh, through our journey in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to talk about a very popular topic, actually, I believe, and it's the topic of the heart. Um, and part of the reason why I say that this is a popular uh, topic or theme is because everyone talks about the heart all the time. We actually use the word heart for almost anything and everything. So this week, as I'm thinking about this, I came up with this list. Uh, people would say something like, uh, you have no heart. That means that you are cruel, right? People would say, well, you have a heart of gold. That means that you're nice, that you're kind. Right? Someone says, you wear your heart and your sleeves. That's not a compliment. That might be saying that you're too sensitive. Right? Um, people say, put your heart into it. That means that you got to try hard and commit. People say, follow your heart, which is the dumbest advice that they could give you. But that means usually, you know, follow what you feel and what you desire. When they tell you, at least your heart was in the right place. That's not a good thing. They're saying that you did something dumb, but at least you meant well. <laughs> if someone says, speak from the bottom of your heart, they're asking you to be honest and truthful. If a child says, I cross my heart, that means that either they lied or they will lie. <laughs> Maybe not. If someone says, I lost heart, that means that I'm giving up. If someone says, I give you my heart, that means that they probably think that they love you. When someone says, don't break my heart, he's saying, be nice to me. Now, I'm going to give you a list of different songs that actually use the word heart. And I try to do multi-generation here, so you might know one of these guys. <laughs> Kanye West, for example, he says, how can you be so heartless? That means that he's dating the wrong person. Tony Praxton, she says, I'm break my heart. That means that she was dating the wrong person. <laughs> Myla Cyrus says, who owns my heart? That means that she's confused. <laughs> Sia says, I've got thick skin and an elastic heart. That means that she has been hurt a lot and she does not learn the lesson. <laughs> Frank Sinatra says, I'm young, I'm young at heart. That means that he's living in denial. <laughs> you like that, huh? That's because we got a bunch of different um, Generation X here. Johnny Cash said, I've been flushed from the bottom of your heart. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but if you notice, everyone has kind of a general understanding of the word heart. They know that there's something important about the concept of the word heart. What is interesting, though, is that none of those things, none of those saints or none of those people actually understand how the Bible talks about the heart. That is not just this uh, romantic thing that we have, but the Bible talks about the heart as the, as the place where everything that we are and everything that we do comes from. That the Bible talks as, as the heart as the controlling uh, engine of 
everything we do. That our motivations, our thoughts, our will, our desires, our emotions, everything flows from the heart. The one person that understands that really well is Jesus. And as he's having this conversation with religious leaders, he is going to go after their hearts. Because they need to understand something about their heart that we all need to understand as well. So these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about the heart exposed, the heart deceived, and the heart redeemed. Now, I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask the question, do you actually know your heart? Go ahead, go ahead. I guarantee you that the person that is asking that question already knows your heart. And most likely, you don't know yours. So let's talk about the first point, the heart exposed. So let me give you a context here. So Jesus is followed, if you have been following the narrative, Jesus is being followed by a ton of people. And Jesus is becoming more and more popular. And he's saying things that nobody else is saying, and he's doing things that nobody else is doing, right? And he's drawing so much attention that the religious leaders are hearing about him, and they move, the religious leaders in verse 1 are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they move from Jerusalem, which is kind of the center city, the most important city, into this little town to talk to Jesus and to confront Jesus. What is weird about the things that we just read in this interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus is that they're not going to question his identity. They are not going to ask questions like, where do you get the power to do the things that you're doing? They're not going to talk about why is it that he says that he's the son of God or why is it that he says that he is God? What is interesting, though, is that they approach Jesus to talk about two things, traditions and washing of hands. It's a super weird question, super weird approach. Look at what it says in verse 2. Why do you disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, the reason why I find that like a weird question is because they're talking about things that are not as important. These are not questions about how is it that I could go to heaven like other people have asked. They're asking about why is it that you disciples don't wash their hands well before they eat. See, and I think that what they think is that if they approach Jesus that way, they're going to have, they're going to prove to everyone that is following him that he's phony. So here you have the religious leaders asking Jesus something that, and I want you to pay attention here, that the elders created, the tradition of the elders I then want Jesus to respond, why is it that he's not doing what this elder said that he's supposed to do? Now, before moving on, I, I think it's important to say, and this is the second time we have talked about this in this series, because it's the second time that it appears, uh, that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with traditions. Traditions are good. Traditions tells you something about your history. Traditions tells you uh, uh, see a little bit something about the context in which you live. Traditions are good when you celebrate something, when you remember something. There is none, nothing intrinsically wrong with traditions. Actually, I think that the modern world and the younger generation need to learn how to embrace traditions. Because one of the things that the modern world has done in the name of innovation, in the name of thinking outside the box, 
They have abandoned most traditions, except the tradition of being innovative, which I find that ironic. The problem with these people, though, had to do with the phrase, traditions of the elders. If you really pay attention to the text, you can see what the problem was, not that they had traditions, but that they saw the traditions of the elders, and they put them at the same level as God's word. Their problem was that they were elevating what this group of people said that these are the traditions we're supposed to have to the, at the same level as God's words. And washing hands was one of those. So obviously these people being teachers of the law, they know about the book of Leviticus and they know about chapters 13, 14, and 15. And they know that there's 20,000 laws there and how is it that you keep yourself clean and how do you make yourself clean? How do you, how, how, how you make yourself pure before God? One of those though was that you're supposed to wash your hands before eating. Any of us would say, well, duh, that's like hygiene. That's not a problem. The problem wasn't that. The problem was that for some reason, they felt the liberty or the freedom to grab what God said and add to it to make sure that people were truly clean before eating. So, for example, they would say something like, um, you remember when people started saying that you got to wash your hands for about 30 seconds and 50 seconds and whatever, sing happy birthday, whatever it is? Uh, they were doing kind of stuff like that. And they would say, well, you got to wash for so long and you make sure that you go around the fingers and you hit the nails. And then they would say, make sure that the water hits not just the hand but the wrist. And make sure you don't touch anything here because you move it here and then do whatever you have to do. But don't touch it anything before you don't want to be unclean before you eat this food. Now, imagine that being you after church. Imagine you being super hungry and that you're about to have a burger. And you get one of the religious leaders that will say will be one of the pastors. And they say, don't forget to wash your hands well right before you have your burger. And then you start doing all these things, and, and then you eat your burger, and you realize that the contamination was not coming from outside of you, but the burger itself was contaminated. And you would think, why are they having me do all these things? So you got to ask the question, why is it that they were so intense about keeping themselves clean? So let me ask you the question. Why is it that sometimes we do things just to make sure that we are clean? I want to invite you to consider that part of the reason why they have these extra rules and regulations, the part of the reason why they have the tendency to add to what God says, why is it that they become extra, extra, extra religious people? It's because deep down inside, they know that they are unclean. 
Deep down inside, they know that there's something wrong. Their conscience tells them that there's something wrong. And for some reason, they thought that if they would grab what God says and add on top of that, they could actually deal with these internal things by doing external things. Man, if I wash my hands. And I think that a lot of us, Sometimes, add to what the Bible says, or try to do things to find some way to, find, some way to find to clean our hearts and our souls. Because deep down inside, we too struggle with that. And Jesus is going to say two amazing things to them. He's going to say, number one, you cannot get contaminated by simply touching things, you know? Your heart cannot be contaminated by simply touching things. And then he's going to confront them and say, the reason why you are contaminated is because your heart is contaminated. Look at what it says in verse 11. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouths, that is what defiles them. Now, I want you to pay attention to the word to defile there because uh, it means two different things. It means to be unclean, and it also means to be unaccepted. So look at what he's saying. You are not unclean, and you are not, you are unclean and contaminated. Is because, not because of the things you touch, but you are unclean and contaminated because that's what you have in your heart. Now, Modern ears, modern sensitive ears, the modern ears that says that you're awesome and you're beautiful and you're perfect, this is a smack in the face. Just as much it was a smack in the face to people that thought that because they were religious leaders, they were clean. Because they went to church, because they read the Bible, because they memorized verses, because they didn't touch this or ate this or did all these rituals. They thought that they were clean. And Jesus says, no, you are not defiled because of the things you touch, do or not do. You are defiled because your heart is already defiled. See, it is possible, church, for you to be surrounded by a bunch of unclean things and not be unclean. And just as much, it is possible for you to be surrounded by unclean things and be attracted to those things because you are already defiled. Let me explain it this way. I've used this example many times. Um, Temptation does not mean sin. Temptation is the attraction that you have towards something. Amen? So you could be tempted... And not sin. But when you are tempted by something evil or bad, you are tempted not because that thing has power over you. Listen up, church. You are tempted because your heart already wants that. Your heart already is defiled. And I used this example when I said uh, uh, before, I, I don't like sweets that much. So if you bring something sweet in front of me, that is not a temptation to me at all. My stuff is salty stuff. Rice. Mm. 
potatoes, steak, with a lot of fat in it. <laughs> you see, even right now. <laughs> That's a temptation to me. Part of the reason why I'm tempted toward that is because that's why I, I already have. And Jesus is saying to these religious people that they think that they have it all together. You are not contaminated because of the things outside of you. You are contaminated by the things you have inside of you. And then he says, if you want to know what that is, look at, what you're, at, at the words that come out of your mouth. So listen, I, I could tell you that in the last hour and a half, in the last two hours, if you really pay attention to the stuff you said, most likely you're going to convince yourself that you're just like these people. And actually he will make the point in verse 18, says, but the things that come out of your person's mouth comes from the heart. And this defile them. So here we have a group of people that they think they're awesome, morally superior to everybody. And Jesus all has, all, the only thing that he needs to say is, how about if you pay attention to the stuff you say? And that's a reflection of your hearts. And just in, case, just in case they miss the point, look at what it says in verse 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So not only he's talking about the words that come out of your mouth, but the thoughts that come, that come from your heart. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimony, and slander. Verse 20, these are what defile a person, but eating with a washed hands does not defile a person. So he's saying, if the stuff you said are beautiful and edifying and perfect and truthful, don't worry, you're good to go. But if the words that come out of your mouth are not truthful and beautiful and edifying, maybe you should worry about your heart. And not only you should worry about your mouth, but maybe you should worry about your thoughts. Because everything that is crooked and damaging and hurt other people and the glory of God that hurts the glory of God, that stuff also comes from your heart. So look at your mouth and look at your thoughts. And he's about to do something here brilliant. Because I'm convinced there's one thing about religious people in the Bible, and which, by the way, is true for religious people today, is that it doesn't matter how much you tell you, look, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. They convince themselves that they are not as wrong as everybody else. That is the number one mark of a religious person. You feel to be, you see yourself as someone that is spiritually, um, morally superior to all the rest of sinners. You know what we have in common with unbelievers? Our sin. None of us had the right to look at someone that does not have Jesus as a Lord and Savior and say, I'm better than you. None of us. The only reason why we are Christians is because of the grace of God. Not because we're better people. Now, these religious leaders are saying, I don't like that sermon, Hannibal. You might be talking about that side of the church, but not this side of the church. And Jesus is going to say, really? Pay attention 
to murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander, pay attention to your evil thoughts. You know what's brilliant about that? These people are convinced that they love God. And they are convinced that they love other people. And Jesus in this list alone is talking about them the second part of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, you know that the Ten Commandments are divided into two sections. The first four has to do with our love for God, and the second six has to do with our love for one another or love other people, right? Now, these people already think that they are settled on the first four. What is interesting is that you don't have four commandments here, and the following week you get the next six. It's this all stuff comes together. Because if you break one of the commandments, it's like if you broke all of the commandments. And Jesus says, you think you love God? You really think you love people? Let me tell you about these sins that are a reflection of your thoughts. So he says, for example, murder. And Jesus had said already that when you hate someone in your heart, is the same like if you had killed that person already in your heart. The consequence is different, but the motive is the same. I don't like you to exist. Isn't that the sixth commandment? Do not kill. He talks about adultery. He's breaking the, he's talking about the seventh commandment and the tenth commandment. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery, but the, the tenth commandment says that you shouldn't covet. Coveting somebody's person that is not yours is a sin. He talks about sexual immorality that he's talking about the seventh commandment. And the word that is used there is porneia. It's the sin that talks about sexual sin in general terms. All sexual sin breaks the seventh commandment. Stealing the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. False testimony is breaking the ninth commandment, don't lie. Later on, he's going to confront him with them breaking the fifth commandment, honor, honoring your parents. And then at the end, to top it off, he uses do not slander. Slander in the original, pay attention, church, is the word blasphemy. Meaning that when we talk about somebody in a not truthful or edifying way, it's a blasphemy against that person. And also a blasphemy against the God of that person. And I could just look at these people that think, and I thought that I was good. And Jesus says, you're not morally superior to everybody. You're not as, as good as you think you are. You're still trying to clean yourself by having rules and regulations. And you're still defiled. You're still unclean. And it doesn't matter how much you try to clean yourself with all your rules and, and regulations and traditions. The one thing that you haven't been able to clean yet is your heart. And your words testify against you and your thoughts testify against you. Don't you think that that is true for us too? Don't you think that we are in the same boat? Don't you think that you and I, we're still unclean? And 
And it doesn't matter how much you try. And it doesn't matter how many rules you have. And it doesn't matter how many things you practice. Deep down inside, you still know that it's not enough. This is part of the reason why we have the tendency to elevate preferences, traditions, and likes to the position of God. So what do we do? Well, there's not much that you could do. Let's pray. Imagine I finished the sermons there. <laughs> what I could tell you here, though, is that I don't think there's much we could do. I'll come back to that later. What I do know is that we should not do what the religious leaders did. Point number two, the heart deceived. So I think that part of the reason they created these, all these traditions and regulations and things like that is because they're trying to deal the problems they have internally, once again, with external things. We actually have a term in modern-day um, historical church history to describe that person, and it's the word legalism. This is a legalist. A legalist is a person that grabs what God says and takes more than that and adds more than that because they think that if they add and do all these things, they can clean themselves. You remember the question in verse 2? Why do you disciples break the traditions of the elders? That's legalism. Adding to the word of God. And Jesus responds in verse 3. And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? And this is crazy. Because here you have a group of people that are doing these things to, to be faithful to God, supposedly. But Jesus says, you are breaking God's commands for the sake of your traditions, your rituals, your practices, your ideas. And not only you apply that to you, but you apply it to everyone else you know. Now, you got to put yourself in the context of this story because this is a public conversation, you know. They're having this debate in front of everybody. So just imagine, Jesus does this all the times with the religious people. They, they, they walk in in the middle of all this thinking that they're all good. You know, they, they, they step into this conversation seeing themselves as morally superior to everybody else. And they're boasting and bragging about their traditions. And Jesus says, bro, you're, you're breaking God's, you're breaking God's love with your, with your traditions. Can you imagine what people did there? They're like, ooh, this is going to get good. <laughs> See, if there's a group of people that Jesus struggles a lot with, it's precisely this kind of people, the legalist. So he's going to explain why is it that he says what he says. He's going to prove to them that they are actually breaking God's laws with their traditions. In verse 4, he says, for God said. Now, remember that. So he's not saying, I say, my friend says, 
the elder says, the pastor says, my opinion is, what I think is, no. God said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is, put, is to be put to death. Look at the principle. This is what God says. We ought to honor our parents. This is all for the younger generation and the middle generation and the older generation. You always honor your parents. That's what God said. Verse 5. But you say, that's talking about the elders, that if anyone declares uh, that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. I'll come back to that later on. Verse 6. They are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So let me explain this super simple. Here you have a religious person that is committed, quote, unquote, committed to God. And he says, I'm so committed to God that I'm going to grab this money, this gift. That's the word devotion there. I'm going to grab this gift and I'm going to give it to God. And the way they did it is I'm going to separate it for God. And if I don't fulfill my commitment, God ought to punish me. That's what they said. And then he's got a follower. And the follower says, I want to be as devoted as this guy. So I'm going to do the same thing. So he grabs his 20 bucks and he puts it to the side and says, I'm going to be devoted to God. And if I don't give this gift to God, then he's going to curse me. But just as, he's, as he makes that commitment, the parents come looking for him and say, you know, we need money. You know, we got sick. We don't have insurance. We don't have savings. Can you please help us? Now, because this is a man that is devoted to God and wants to be devoted to God, and he said, he says, wait, hold on a second. I only have 20 bucks, but I devoted it to the Lord, but the Lord also calls me to honor my parents. So because he doesn't know what to do, he goes to the pastor. He says, pastor, what do you think we should do? And this religious pastor, he says, hold on a second. Didn't you already devote, didn't you already devote this money to God? Yeah. I don't think it's your fault that your parents are going through that. I mean, it's their fault that they didn't do the financial piece thing. For those of you who don't, it's, it's a program to learn how to manage money. <laughs> it's not my fault that they didn't go to the financial peace program. It's not my fault that they didn't do savings. It's not your fault that they didn't mismanage their money. Don't give that money to them. Devoted it to God. And now you got this young man with this unjustified guilt. Because the elders added to the scripture. Because the most godly thing this young man should have done was to grab that money and give it to the parents. Can you see? how dangerous legalism is. And there are people here that have unjustified guilt because someone has added something to the scripture that makes you feel guilty for something. Now, I told you that Jesus doesn't have much of a good attitude toward these people. The hardest things that you find in the Gospels that comes from the mouth of Jesus are always him confronting the legalist. Look at verse 7. You hypocrites. Don't imagine Jesus saying, oh, you hypocrites. No, no, no. You hypocrites. I said I was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their 
honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's legalism. Church, and I don't want to be mean, but I'm about to. We do that today. When you choose your politics over the gospel, when you choose your preferences over the gospel, when you choose your traditions over the gospel, when you make people feel guilty because they don't parent their kids the way you do, when you talk about education and there's only one way for you to educate your kid, every time we add to what the scripture says, we are giving people this unjustified guilt. That's why Jesus is so hard with these people. They confuse their personal opinions, preferences, likes, and rules with the word of God. See, this is the crazy thing about legalists. That at the end of the day, you don't need Jesus. You don't need a savior. You can save yourself by being really good. See, this is the problem with legalism. You really don't love God. You really don't love others. You know what you love? Your rules. This is the problem with legalism. You are self-sufficient. I know what I need to do to be saved. This is the problem with the legalist. You do not need grace. You can be saved by works. This is the problem with the legalist. You ignore the heart. And you are content with external modification, physical modification and practice. So it doesn't matter if your heart is twisted. As long as you look good, that's okay. You know the saddest thing about a legalist? That it doesn't matter how much you try. It doesn't matter how many rules you follow. It doesn't matter how many traditions you hold. It doesn't matter how spotless you are about the things you do. You still feel unclean. So, there's nothing for you to do. But there's something for you to stop doing. I want to invite you to consider that every single one of us, including the preacher, has a little legalist inside. That's why sometimes we are so hard with our imperfections and our deficiencies. And that's why sometimes it's so hard to deal with failures. And this is the reason why sometimes we are so harsh with the people that are not like us. So we got the heart exposed, the heart deceived. So if there's nothing else for us to do, what's the solution? The heart redeemed. So it's interesting because the religious leaders, they knew everything about Leviticus chapter 13 to 15. But I find it interesting that it seems like if they stopped reading the Bible there. Because in Leviticus chapter 16, you got an image of the atonement day. Which it was a once-a-year celebration in which all the Israelites would gather before, uh, by, before the temple or the tabernacle, wherever, whichever it was, right? And the high priest, 
will go into the most holy place. The, the tabernacle had three different sections. This is the most holy place in which the high priest could only go once a year to make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of everyone. Now, this preparation, this is coming from a scholar that his name is uh, Raymond Diller. He already passed away. Um, he, he would describe the process. He was an expert in the book of, of Zechariah. And he would describe the, the process like this. In order for the high priest to get into the, into the most holy place, it will take one week of preparation. And during that week, he will separate himself from the entire family and everybody else. Why? Because he wanted, to be, he wanted to make sure that he would not be unclean at all. That he wouldn't touch anybody, he wouldn't touch anything unclean before he would go into the presence of God. The night before the day of atonement, he would, he would not go to sleep. He would spend the whole night praying and reading to purify his soul before going into the presence of God. And the day of the atonement, he will bathe himself, put new clothes, go inside, confess his sins, sacrifice for his sins, get out, bathe again, put another set of clothing, go inside and, and, and then make a sacrifice for the sins of the religious leaders, come out again, bathe himself up, put another set of clothes, and then go in and sacrifice for the rest of the people. And this was public. So people could see that God means business. That the impure cannot be in front of the presence of God. That the unclean cannot be in the presence of God. But what Diller found out as he studied in the book of, of Zechariah chapter 3 is that he noticed that there's an image of one high priest. His name is Joshua. That after he does all these rituals, God still sees, them, sees him as impure and unclean. And this is the lesson that he gives. That it doesn't matter how much you clean yourself. How many times you bathe yourself. How many different sets of clothing you put on. How many sacrifices you do. You're still unclean. And part of the reason why we have that is because that image was pointing to the great high priest. To the ultimate high priest. Another Joshua. You know the name Jesus comes from Joshua? The one that will go into the presence of God. Jesus Christ. That would also prepare himself the last week. But his preparation was completely different. His preparation was to, for him to be ignored. For him to be betrayed. For him to be arrested. For him to be uh, humiliated. And he would also, before going to the Father, we spend the night praying. But not praying for his sins. Praying for your sins. Praying for my sins. Praying knowing that he was going to take the wrath of God. And in the day of atonement, he went in. But there was no lamb for the sacrifice. Because he was the lamb of the sacrifice. He will be the one that would take upon himself all your uncleanness, all of my uncleanness. He will be the one that will go in to make me acceptable before the Father. It is only when we take that in mind, into consideration, that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 11 makes sense. And that is why, that is what some of you were, but you were washed and were sanctified and were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. See, we sang before. That because of Jesus, we have been cleaned. Everyone here, including me, 
we still struggle with our uncleanness because we're still sinful. But at the same time, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are already clean. You don't need to do anything to wash yourselves. That's why I said that there's nothing for you to do. What we do is to believe. Believe that you have been already accepted. Believe that you have been already clean. Believe that you have been already loved. Believe that Jesus already, God already sees you completely clean in Jesus Christ. And the more you have that, the less you're going to try to do things like if you need to earn God. That's how you kill the legalist inside of you, you know? When I remember that I have already been washed. You remember that prostitute that came approaching Jesus? You know how unclean she felt? And Jesus said, go and sin no more. You're already clean. That's you. That's me. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know how many of my brothers and sisters have come today carrying a load of their past sins and the things they have done wrong and the things that they are doing wrong. And I know, Lord, that I come to you just as they are with the things they have. But I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, because of the cross, because of our high priest that went into the presence of God to take the wrath we deserve, we have been washed. We have been clean. We have been set free. We don't need regulations. We don't need traditions. We don't need practices to make us clean again. That's what we already have. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that by the power of your spirit, we may see that, believe that, apply that, and live in light of that. You have already put on us these beautiful garments. We are already beautiful in your sight if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have repented. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's still carrying that load and don't have a relationship with you yet, I pray that, the spirit, that your spirit draws them to you and they may confess their sins and believe in the gift that has already been given. Please make it happen. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and we all say,